Hi, I'm Jeremy. How are you out there? Good. Hey, Uh, everybody's gone. They're all at camp. So I figured, you know, whatever. We'll just kind of hang out a little bit today. It'll be good. Uh, No, I'm really excited. I don't know if you, my my son, if you know him, you probably noticed him out there. If you don't know him, he's the kid who kept doing this in the front. Uh, That's my boy. He's off at camp right now. Uh, we, we sent across, this is the first year that we've ever had all 10 of Redemption's congregations represented at summer camp. They sent over 500 students and 200 volunteers, uh, leaders, pastors, and tech folks to go run this camp. It's a huge investment. I know, it's really great. Uh, and believe me, they're doing just fine. It's 60-something, and they're you know, enjoying San Diego. But you can be praying for them. This is a huge investment uh, on, that, on behalf of this church that we've been doing for years and years and years because we really do believe that the future of the church is investing in the next generation and, in, and seeing them come to life in the gospel. And this weekend represents a big part of that. So be praying for them as they go. Uh, you're stuck here with me. So let's get going. We're going to keep going in our series in Colossians. We're actually getting close to the end of the book here. It's a fairly brief book. And today we're really going to be talking about this idea about what does it look like when faith comes home. Before we get there, I want to tell you a little bit uh, about me my favorite topic. Uh, I'm a kid who grew up in the 80s, and I grew up uh, in a very, very small town in rural North Dakota. Uh, We didn't have a lot to do. Uh, The winters in North Dakota are very long, and they're very brutal. Uh, And even our TV, we had uh, an, an antenna on the top of the house that would receive three channels uh, that we could watch growing up. And so in 1986, something very significant happened to me. I was an eight-year-old little boy. Uh, I think I was going into third grade. And that fall of 1986, something started broadcasting Saturday mornings into my home, which radically changed my little kid life. The WWF uh, superstars of wrestling was, started being put on TV every single Saturday morning growing up. And I was enamored uh, by this soap opera of violence. It it was incredible. I didn't know it was a soap opera at the time. In fact, I wanted to enact violence on my dad when he kept telling me, he was trying to tell me it was fake. I did not believe that. After all, how could Hulk Hogan lie to me? Um, But it it, it was awesome. I was so, me and my little brother, we were so into it uh, growing up. We would watch every single Saturday. It was appointment television. We would save up the little... um, allowance that we would get from our parents, and we would buy magazines about the WWF. Uh, our little home, the little town that was just a couple miles away from where we grew up, they had a gas station. It was the one store in town, and they had a small VHS section where you could go rent movies, and occasionally they would get WrestleMania tapes that we would go and rent and watch and watch and watch. We just loved it. Uh, and as a kid, it was this outlet of like aggression and cool storylines that would happen. And usually the battles were the two big guys would come and they would battle each other. And they were, if it was a good fight, they were evenly matched until one of them would just barely overcome the other one and win and it would be great. But see, here's the trick. In order to become the big guys who would be in those marquee fights, they would have to build them up Saturday after Saturday after weeks just beating the ever-living out of these no-name guys. They would just pound them into the ground. And one of the things that would really demonstrate their supreme mastery over their opponent was a sleeper hold. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the sleeper hold, but you get behind the guy and you get his head in something like this. At least that's how I used to practice on my little brother. Uh, and usually I think it was supposed to involve cutting off the blood flow to his brain. You weren't supposed to think about that when you were eight and put him to sleep. And there was all kinds of these amazing submission holds that these guys would put guys into, the camel clutch or the figure four, figure four leg lock where it looked like he was gonna snap the guy's leg off. And really, that was super effective at, you're with me, Jade. Yeah, um, this was really effective at establishing how powerful the stars were because they could just completely dominate the other person. In fact, they called them submission holds because rather than being closely matched and barely overcoming, you would dominate them so much you'd put them into submission. Now, you're probably going, what is this guy talking about? I think I have notes that help me figure it out. No, we, ha we have to realize that the word submit and submission comes with it a whole bunch of baggage. And so me growing up as a kid in the 80s, when I hear the word submission, I immediately am here. It's violence, it's domination, it's, it's causing someone to tap out because they can't take it anymore. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of baggage that comes around with the word submission. And so when we get to a text like what we're going through today, just two verses, and it opens like this, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We, we just have to take a half a step back and realize that the word submit comes with a whole bunch of baggage. Tons. Mine looks like wrestling. Yours might like, look like something else. And here's the other thing that it would be really healthy for us as Christians to be able to admit. For a long time and in many places and in many ways, texts like these have been used to justify all kinds of harsh treatment of women. That's just the reality. And it doesn't do us any good to pretend that's not true because it is true, it has happened, it's still happening in places, and that's not acceptable. But we need to be able to talk about what is Paul trying to talk to the church about in this moment even though it comes with the baggage of a word like submission and what does that look like? Here's what Paul's trying to do. Now, depending on which uh, translation you're using, if you're following along in your paper Bible, uh, the heading to this section probably says something like instructions to Christian households. And uh, I'm guessing that you're probably not familiar with uh, any other kinds of instructions to households from the ancient Near East. Or maybe you are, and you can talk to me afterwards because we'll nerd out together. But most likely, this is the only kind of formal instruction to households that you've ever known from this era. But these things are very common. They're called household codes. In fact, in the Roman Empire, there was well-known and well-established household codes that dictated for you what was expected of your household to be a good member of society. In fact, the Roman household code was established, that's a hard thing to say, household code, household code. The Roman one was established by Aristotle some 400 years before this. He was at, it was actually a Greek household code at the time. And he gave that to Alexander the Great, who essentially conquered the known world at the time. And eventually, once the Romans came to rule, they just adopted these household codes. And here, what we see from Paul is laid out for us what he views as a Christian household code. How do we operate in the world as a household? What is expected of us? Now, 
when, the last time I taught out of Colossians, I, I framed this letter uh, as being a delivery of utmost importance that Paul was writing to this church he had never met to give them instructions because living under the reign of King Jesus is a massively important thing, and he wanted to establish this for them. I'm going to read for you another letter that's probably a lot less familiar for you that I came upon in my work preparing for today. This is a letter that is not in the Bible. In fact, one of the interesting facts about this letter is that by most measures, we believe that this is the very first time outside of the scriptures that Christians are mentioned in the public record. Christians have, at this point, this, this letter is written in about uh, 110 AD, so you're probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 years after Paul wrote this letter to Colossian, the Colossian church. We have this letter that's recorded in Roman history, and here's what the letter is. It's a letter from a newly installed Roman governor. A Roman governor would be like a governor over a region or a mayor or maybe like a Maricopa County I don't know, this is, tells you how much I know about local government, Tyler, you have to tell me later. Uh, whoever would be in charge over the, the county. This guy's newly installed, and he's installed over the state that is directly to the north of uh, the uh, church at Ephesus and Colossae. So this is the region just to the north of it. He's installed as the governor, and he's given a job by the emperor. And one of the jobs that he's given is to figure out what's going on with these underground rumors about this new group of people, Christians. In fact, the letter is pretty lengthy, and he, he says, uh, Emperor, I came out here to do this job you gave to me. I didn't know anything about these Christians. I'd never met any of them. I'd never presided over any of their trials, and, and I'm having a hard time understanding what they're all about, but I think I've gotten to the bottom of it. I, ca I captured two of their slaves. They call them deaconesses, and I tortured them to find out what they believe. And they, they gave me the scoop. And then this, I, this is the part I want to read to you. This, his name was real catchy, Pliny the Younger. Uh, he's the Roman governor, and he's writing to the emperor Trajan at this time. This is what he says. I therefore postpone the investigation, and I hasten to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant to consult you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of the superstition has spread not only to the cities but also to the villages and to the farms. The governor is in a little bit of a panic. He's tortured these two poor women to find out what's going on with the Christians. And he, he gets so freaked out by how many people are falling into this and what they're teaching, he immediately stops his investigation to write a letter to the emperor. Now I want you to imagine, you're the brand new guy on the job and your boss is really important and known to fits of violence. And you're so caught off guard by what you've discovered, that you're going to write him and say, what am I supposed to do about this? It's real bad out here. And what's really bad? Many people of every age, every rank, and every gender, both genders, every gender, both gender, are, are being caught up in this superstition. And it's not only in the cities where new ideas come from, it's been around and taking so much root, it's making its way out to the villages and the, form, and the farms. Essentially, what he's saying, it's not confined to just Ephesus, it's all the way out in Colossae. There's people that are following this. And what is the concern? The concern is that it's going to disrupt the Roman societal order. And one of the evidences that it's going to happen is that people of every age, every rank, and both sexes 
are being treated equally in this place. It introduces real tension because there is expectation in the Roman world, in their household code, of what it looks like to live as a good Roman. In fact, it's one of the, the key figures in their household code is the potter familias. I'm not great at my Latin, but stick with me. It essentially means the head of household. This is the oldest living male in a household who could legally exercise autocratic authority over his extended family. Essentially what that means is he was a dictator over his house. And he was given legal authority to be that and to do that. The potter familias was expected to be a good citizen and to preside over a household that undergirded the Roman way of life. Now, the title for this person, the eldest male of their household, was Lord. Does that sound familiar? Lord? In fact, the most famous Lord was the emperor himself was referred to as Lord because he viewed himself as not being outside of the household codes of Rome. He was the head of the household of Rome. He was the Lord. And if you were the oldest male in your household, you had responsibility as Lord to raise up good Roman citizens, okay? So that's the backdrop in which Paul is now writing to this church. And I just wanna take, I'm gonna back us up just a little bit to come running at this section on the household codes here because it really helps us to understand the argument that Paul's making before he gets here. So if you're following along in your Bible, um, we're gonna back up to verse 11 and kind of take a run at this and I'll have it up here on the screen so you can follow along. Here's what he says. Here, meaning in the church, There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In other words, he says, those cultural divisions that exist in the Roman Empire do not exist here in the church because Jesus is everything to all of us and he has leveled the playing field in the gospel. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, submit yourself to the pater familias of the church, your Lord, Jesus. He's the head of our household. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with him. This run-up is important because it, it frames for us the tension of the moment. The gospel frees us from the divisions that the societies we live in have structured us. Racial divisions, gender divisions, class divisions, economic divisions are wiped out in the light of the gospel. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But that introduces tension into a people who are now trying to live in a society that values order, structure, and hierarchy at the highest level. So the question is, how do we do this? 
Last time I taught, I used this story from The Sixth Sense, where you watch the movie and at the end you realize, man, I have to rethink everything I just saw. Paul's doing the exact same thing here again. He's saying, it, it, this is your opportunity in your household, in your marriage, in your, uh, your parenting, in your working for and leading over people to rethink everything. And what he's asking them to rethink is, I, I think, three kind of big categories. The first one is their position. So whether you are the Lord of your household or the wife that is in that household, you need to think about how you use the position you've been given in the world through the lens of Jesus. You don't just live in a position because that's what society tells you. Even though that might be true, you get the opportunity to bring your perspective to that position. How do I operate in this role? How do I operate in what's expected of me? How do I operate in a world that looks a certain way. That's the perspective that you've been given freedom in the gospel to be able to express in a Jesus-shaped way. And out of that comes your participation. You can participate in a kind of life that is beneficial to society, but is undergirded by your love of Jesus and your reverence for him. And we're, we're encouraged as gospel people, as Jesus people, to rethink our place, our perspective, and our participation in the world. And he says to do this, starting with your relationships at home. Sorry. Because this is the truth of the gospel. When the gospel transforms the life within us, it begins to create a transformed world around us. When the gospel transforms the life within us, it begins to create a transformed world around us. If you notice here, Paul doesn't say, uh, the emperor has set up a system that's anti-gospel and we need to overthrow the emperor. He begins with the place. Now, listen, that might be true. In fact, you could make strong arguments that the emperors that were overseeing these churches were horrible, were anti-Christian at the deepest level. But he doesn't start there. He starts with the relationship that's the closest. He says, husbands and wives, if you want to start to revolutionize the world in a gospel-shaped way, start in your own bedroom. Start with the person who lays next to you at night. Start with the person who you have the closest access to, who knows you the best, and that you have no hope of faking out. So when he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, don't be harsh with them. Look, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That was a normal thought. But he takes that and says, if that's your position, you get to change your perspective and your participation in this. You're not doing it because Rome told you to do it. You're doing it because it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. What I think is interesting about this, there's two observations before we kind of move on. The first one is, notice he does not tell you to make the other person do this. It doesn't say, wives, make sure that your husbands love you, and husbands, make sure your wives are submitting to you as is fitting to the Lord. Why is it that we most of the time approach our marriages with that in hand? I'm really upset that he's not loving me the way that he should. I'm really upset she's not submitting to me and giving me the respect that I need. I think, I think this is hugely significant for us that what Paul calls us to do is to willingly submit ourselves to the calling that God has on us. He says to wives, you, with what you've been given, submit. Husbands, with what you've been given, 
love. This isn't for you to make sure someone else does. It's about your participation in them. This is self-directed. The second thing I want to address is in the, in the direction to husbands here in verse 19. Uh, the translation that you will most often see is this one. Love your wives, don't be harsh with them. I kind of dug into that because those two things kind of seem like he's repeating himself. Uh, and far be it for me to question biblical translation, but there are other translations that I think would be more helpful for us in, in, in this way. The, the other translation that I've seen says, husbands, love your wives and do not become bitter towards them. And the minute I saw that, I thought, that feels more like what Paul is trying to instruct. And here's the reason why. You can easily give a presentation of loving your spouse, but also be harboring bitterness towards them in your love. If I love you, I can't really be harsh towards you. If I'm being harsh towards you, it's hard for me to claim that I'm loving you. But there is a way for me as a husband to claim that I'm loving my wife while secretly building up bitterness towards her. And Paul gives both of these instructions. I think what he's saying is like, not only do you have to love her, you have to love her as you're loving her. You don't get to begin building resentment and bitterness towards her as you love her in this way. Here, there's, these things are hugely important. You can get a sense for how important the household codes of the new Christian world is because Paul addresses it in this letter. He addresses it in his letter to the Ephesian church. There's another letter that you could probably argue that this is what he's talking about. Peter in 1 Peter addresses this exact same thing. It's obvious by the amount of time that this topic comes up that this is a point of tension as Christians engage in the world. And if we, if we look at this from the Ephesian letter, this is the way Paul opens this section in Ephesians, which is a little longer letter. This is what he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's in Ephesians. As he opens it, he, he then follows it up by saying, wives, submit to your husbands. But he starts with what I think is the subversive message to the Roman culture. You're submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. You're redefining your engagement in the world through this. And what we get here is unsurprising submission and uncommon love. What do I mean by that? The idea that it would be expected that a wife in their household would be submitted, that is absolutely unsurprising. Every one of the household codes included instructions that almost sound exactly like it, minus out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your Lord. That was completely normal, unexpected. What is uncommon is the fact that Paul puts an onus on the husband to love his wife. Listen, if he had said, uh, husbands, provide for your wife, that would have been unsurprising. If he had said, husbands, rule over your wife, totally unsurprising. If he had said, husbands, um, protect your wife, that would have been unsurprising. But when he says to love her, that is absolutely unheard of in the ancient Near Eastern discussions around civic life. He would have had every opportunity to behave in any way that he saw possible up to life and death of every member of his household. And Paul tells him what he gets to do with that responsibility that he's been given by his society, his culture. He's to use it to love. 
That is absolutely radical. Here's what one of the commentaries I read on this says, said about it. Although this is about the Ephesians passage about household codes. It said this, although Paul upholds the ancient ideal of wifely submission for his culture, he qualifies it by placing it in the context of mutual submission. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church by willingly laying down their lives for them. At the same time that he relates Christianity to the standards of his culture, he subverts his culture's values by going far beyond them. Both husbands and wives must submit and love. It's an, it's an incredible under, uh, undercutting of the cultural expectations by saying you can live in the cultural expectation, but you can subvert it by doing better. All I can hear when I hear this is the echoes of Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you may have heard, and then he tells them what the commonly held law is in their culture, and he says, but I say to you, and then he goes way beyond it. This is what the Christian life looks like, and this is the reality of why this mutual submission is such a great example of how we're supposed to engage. Oh, I'm going to tell you what love is. I was like, wait, is this for my, time for my what is love joke? What is love? Baby, no hair? Okay. There you go. I got it. It was a little, uh, timing was off. It, it brings the question like, what is love, right? Because most of the time when we, read this, uh, when we read this text and we read, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. How many of you say, I'd rather take the love passage than the submit passage? You, know, you can raise your hand if you'd like. I kind of guess what this looks like. Most people go, I'll take love, but don't make me submit. Let me explain to you what love looks like through the Christian lens. And then maybe if we take another poll, you might change your mind. Because in, in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, he, he goes on a lengthy explanation of what love is. If you've ever been to a marriage that's overseen by anyone even vaguely Christian, they probably quoted it. So I'm actually going to use the uh, New Living Translation to hopefully give you a little fresh run at it. But here's what it says. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice in injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. I get it because I have talked about submission holds and the words that are, the feelings that are tied with this idea of submission, but I'm telling you, being called to love, being called to love in that way is not exactly easy sledding. And this is the kind of thing that when Paul says submit to each other mutual submission out of reverence for Christ, you can exchange that and say mutually love each other out of reverence for Christ. And this is the kind of love that it looks like. And I'm just, we just have to be honest about it. Christ-like love is easy to submit to. And Christ-like submission is easy to love. In a marriage where we're pursuing mutual submission and mutual love in the likeness of Christ, we're not going to be debating this. We're going to go, of course it's easy to submit to someone who loves me like Jesus loves. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says... Wives, submit to your husbands like the church submits to Jesus. 
And then he says to the husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church, laying himself down for her. If we live in that kind of world, let's just be honest, this is easy. We're not having a debate. I'm not standing up here trying to instruct you. If we were all doing it, it'd be easy and it would make sense. Because Christ-like love is easy to submit to and Christ-like submission is easy to love. And maybe it would actually be more helpful if I could describe for you what a non-submissive, non-loving marriage looks like. Maybe. It's not that hard to figure out because all we have to do is go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we do an inverse on it. And here's what a lack of submission or a lack of love looks like in a marriage. It's impatient, it's unkind, it's jealous, it's boastful, it's proud, it's rude, it's demanding, it's irritable, it keeps records of wrongs, it rejoices in injustice, it gives up and it loses faith. Now, maybe for you, you go, that sounds more like what I've experienced in marriage. Because I'll tell you right now, the, the times when I've grown the most in my marriage are the times when I have to approach my wife and say, this is the way I've been behaving. Rachel, I need your forgiveness because I've been proud, I've been unkind, I've been demanding, I've been irritable, I've been impatient. Usually before I get to that point, I'm saying, and let me tell you the record of the wrongs that you've done to me to justify my behavior, Right? I've, done, I've been doing pastoral ministry for about 15 years now, something like that, and uh, I've done a lot of marriage counseling. I've seen a lot of marriages end. And when I got to the part where I was writing this up and I got to, it gives up and it loses faith. That's what I've seen in marriages where love and a lack of, a lack of love and a lack of submission exists. It ends in a place of giving up. It ends in a place of losing faith that anything could ever change. I want to give you good news. This is an unnatural way to live in a marriage. When Paul writes his letter to the church in Rome, he opens in chapter one and he says, at the beginning of the story of the Bible, humankind did something that was disastrous. We traded the truth of God for a lie. We began to worship created things instead of the creator. And out of that came unnatural behavior. And the kind of unnatural behavior he's talking about looks like this. So if you're experiencing this in your marriage, the lie that you're going to be tempted to believe is this is just the way it is. And I'm just telling you that's not true. This is unnatural life. This is not the way you were designed as a Christ follower to live and to thrive in your marriage. Now, if we believe that that is true, then that means that there is hope in the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel that we can be transformed and we can reject this kind of living. We can recapture natural marriage. Natural marriage looks like love. Unnatural marriage looks like that. And there's hope for us to be able to change, change it. In fact, I think one of the keys in how we can change this behavior is to take another instruction from Paul that he wrote to the church in Philippi when he says this, do nothing, so in your marriage, just put your marriage glasses on. In your marriage, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider your spouse better than yourself. Each of you in your marriage should look not only to your own needs, your own interests, but also to the interest of your spouse. 
If we think through our lives, it's so easy for us to read that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves and then we make our neighbor an abstraction instead of this person that I'm married to and do everything with. God gave you a gift of a neighbor who will never leave your house. Even if you wish they would. Somebody clapped. I don't know if that's because you're happy about it or... But this is the reality. We're given the instruction to consider my spouse's needs as greater than my own. To consider that my spouse should be held in a higher esteem than I am. Now I get it. Immediately you go, yeah, but if I do that, I know, I know, I know. Because that leads to the obvious what ifs. These are, these are obvious. What if I'm married to someone who doesn't go along with this program? What if I commit myself to giving these things to my spouse and they don't want to? I'm going to tell you about a gift that, if that describes you, I want to tell you about a gift that you've been given that you probably wouldn't have chosen to be given. You've been given a unique opportunity to fast track your faith because in your marriage, especially a marriage where it's not reciprocated, where this kind of Christ-like love and submission is not reciprocated, you're going to be given an ample and an increasing opportunity to behave in a Christ-like way where you're rejected, where your love is not handed back to you, where you're taken advantage of. Maybe you've experienced that. You get the opportunity to rethink everything. That's what the gospel says. You get to rethink that rejection. You get to rethink feeling alone in that because you are united with Christ. He experienced the same thing. And you're given that opportunity. And I get it. You probably say, yeah, but I'd sure like to try the opposite version. I I understand. I, I really do. That's a pretty heavy what if. The next one is probably much more. Maybe you even have a, you have a great marriage. You would describe it as really good, but you say, well, what if I don't agree with them? You just said I'm supposed to be fighting to let them be the one who's more significant. What if I want to go on vacation at the beach and she wants the vacation at the mountains and we can't come to some agreement? First of all, if that's the depth of your arguments, boy, <laughs> you got it good. Second of all, we should be, this is, this is the beauty of what Christian marriage looks like. You get the opportunity to be fighting with your spouse about who gets the privilege of letting their preference be the one that dies on the ground. I know, that sounds like, wait, what? <laughs> Christian marriage gives you the unique opportunity to be the winner in your marriage. How do you get to be the winner in your marriage? By being the one who gets to lay down your preference. So now instead of your arguments being who gets to win the argument, you get to argue about who gets to lose the argument because that's the real winner. And then you go, yeah, that sounds terrible. I, I understand. One of the questions you might be asking is those first two things, like I'm married to someone who doesn't live this way and, and we never agree. And if I, if I engage in laying down, I'm going to always lay down because we're not fighting over who gets to. He'll, he or she will let me do it every single time. What if it's like this forever? I, I can't make any promises to you, but I can tell you about the nature of the God that loves you and you serve. He's kind and he writes long stories. He writes long stories. Forever is a long time. 
And I get it, you want things to be resolved tomorrow, you wanna see change tomorrow, and I pray for that alongside you. But I'm telling you that God's faithfulness is an eternal faithfulness. And he, even in this life, he writes stories that have long arcs. I'm, I'm a 44-year-old man. If you went back to my parents, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents loved me. They provided a great household. They taught me the things that I should believe and do. But if you went to them when I was 20 or 21 as their oldest son and say, hey, how's it going with Jeremy? They would have been like, ooh, I don't know if he's going to pull out of this one. I was a wreck. I was not following Jesus. I was selfish. I was doing whatever I wanted to do. That's just the reality. And they prayed for me. And God writes long stories. I meet with parents all the time who said, my kid is wayward and they're not following Jesus. I meet with people all the time that say, my husband claimed to love Jesus, but I don't see any evidence in his life. I'm just telling you, you keep praying and you keep being faithful and God writes long stories. It's not hopeless. I think the last question is probably the most honest and the most day-to-day real. What if I can't do what you just described? I did one of the, one, a long time ago, I did marriage counseling with a couple and I was talking to them about this idea, this idea that God promises that if you lay down your preferences and you lay down your life, he will give you joy and resurrection on the other t- side. That's what the, that's what the scriptures describe, that through laying down your life, you will find life. And the wife gets tears in her eyes and she looks across the table at me and she says, I know he says it, I just don't believe him. So it's, it was one of the most honest things anyone's ever said to me. And it resonated with me so much. I think about it all the time because so often in my life, that's how I feel. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm called to do, but I don't believe it. Because if I really believed it, I would live out of it in joy. Instead, most of the time I say, but I can't. I can't. I can't be the doormat again. I can't be the one who gives up my preference again. I can't believe that it's gonna turn out okay. I'm I'm telling you, if that's you, you're in exactly the place you need to be. Because in your weakness, his strength will be made manifest in your life and you can confess to him in faithful honesty your lack of ability to live in this way. And it's in that place that the grace of God will find you, the power of the Spirit will empower you, and you will be able to move on loving in a Christ-like manner. This is what God wants for us, to admit in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, I can't do it. You're right. But he can, and he lives within you, and he gives you the power that you need. So let's continue moving Forward. I just want to give us a couple wrap-up points here. The, two things on marriage and then one kind of idea to leave us with. Here it is. The first one is your marriage is a real-time gospel gym. At the first service, I tried to talk about what you go to the gym for and I got all tongue-tied because it became very obvious. Like, I have no idea why you go to the gym. Like, well, you go for functional power, lift, I don't know. You go to the gym for a couple of reasons. You go to the gym because it creates an artificial structure in which you practice something that gives you strength, ability, endurance, right? The the person who goes to the gym and plays basketball every single day is gonna be way better than me who just relies on my natural raw ability, which is ample, but not as much as somebody who tries every day. Or the person who lifts weights every day is gonna have a lot more functional strength when something heavy needs to be lifted, 
right? That, that's just the way that it works. And your marriage is a real-time gospel gym. What you have built into your marriage, particularly if you look at it through the right lens, is an opportunity to practice Christ-likeness all the time. In what other environment do you get an opportunity to admit your failures daily? In what other environment are you given a safe place to drop the pretense of who you want people to think you are and really be who you are? In what other environment can you ask for forgiveness in a humble way which really admits how much hurt you've offered someone? In what other environment can your weaknesses be pointed out in a way that someone really has your best interest at heart? In what other environment do you have an opportunity with regularity to practice loving my neighbor as myself and laying down my life on behalf of another? None. Marriage is the best place for you to practice. And I'm not saying you can't do it if you're not in a marriage, but the fact that someone lives in your house that you cannot get rid of and is committed to this in your life means that you're going to get reps. You're going to get practice if you embrace it. Marriage has so many benefits. But if you don't view it through this lens of being an opportunity to grow in your Christ likeness, it is going to frustrate you in many ways more than it brings blessing because you're going to try to avoid that stuff. I don't want someone who sees the real me. I don't want to admit my failures. My whole life, our entire society, the way we operate is designed to minimize those things. And God, you've given me this relationship with this person who can see through it all the time. Yes, that's a great gym to be in. Now you might go, that sounds really hard. And you're right, it is. It's what Christian community is all about. You need us to help you be a good spouse. Because you need us to be able to be, conf you, you need to confide in someone when you're struggling. You need to confess to someone when you failed. You need someone to encourage you as you try to pursue this. You need to, someone to uh, champion you when you're doing the right thing. You need someone to celebrate when you hit your 25th wedding anniversary, your 40th wedding anniversary, your 50th wedding anniversary, because you endured. The gospel is a real, uh, your marriage is a real-time gospel gem. The other one is your marriage is a real-world gospel display. What do I mean by that? There are people in your life that you maybe don't tell them about the gospel all the time, but they know because you've mentioned you go to church or you've mentioned something about faith or you have a Bible bumper sticker on your car or whatever it is, something that you have done in your relationships that indicates this person is a person of faith, a Christian. They're watching your marriage as evidence, as a validator about whether this thing you claim is true or not. That might, you might think that's unfair. You might think, you might wish they didn't do that. But the reality is you're making radical claims about Jesus and how he transforms everything. And they're gonna watch your marriage, the way you talk about your spouse, the way you enjoy your spouse, the way you celebrate your spouse, the way you intentionally plan for them. And they're gonna use that as a validator about what you claim, if what you claim is true or not. You might wish that wasn't true, but it is. And, and so you've been given a gift here of evangelism, validating evangelism that can be done through making your marriage a great one. I'm gonna intentionally only speak kindness and goodness about my spouse, particularly when they're not there. 
This, this is what we've been given as the church. And, you know, I started the, I started the talk today talking about the WWF and submission holds. And I want to bring it full circle because I think as the church, we really do need to be wrestling in our marriages. And here's what the wrestle needs to look like. Submission wrestling with love. There's a battle going on between submission and love to see who is going to be supreme. Now, here's the good news. It doesn't matter which one wins because they're both great outcomes. Love and submission are wrestling to be supreme in our closest relationships. Paul's gonna continue because the household codes deal with parents and children and with employees and employers and all kinds of things that go along with that. But let us not jump past the greatest opportunity we have, which is in your marriage. I just love to give you the task of thinking about how can my submission and my love be better tomorrow? Heck, let's start today. What do you guys say? And I understand, these things are hard. They're not easy. If it was easy, every Christian marriage would be a great marriage. And it's not true, it just isn't. Because we are broken people who bring our own difficult upbringings into the party. We bring our own sin into the party. We bring our own problems into the party. But if we commit ourselves to submitting to Jesus and to living under his lordship, then we can fight for this. We will be people fighting with submission, wrestling with love. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. God, we thank you so much for the gift of marriage. God, it's a gift that brings with it all kinds of beautiful things and all kinds of complications. God, we pray that we would use the opportunities we, we are given to love our spouse, to sacrifice on their behalf, to lay down our lives, to love and to honor and to cherish the one that we've been given. God, we, we do not wanna be a people who reject the gift of being grown in Christ-likeness through our marriage. God, help us to take the opportunities we've been given. God, let our church, let this community be a place who has the best marriages in all of the East Valley and that those marriages give a clear testimony to the goodness of living under the reign of King Jesus, who we love. We pray this in his name, amen.